Well, we're going to open the uh, Scriptures this morning, so I'm just going to ask you if you have your Bible or to flip into your apps to uh, turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke. So we can actually turn to Luke 1. Uh, we're going to start at verse 5. If you're just new to this game, we essentially have four accounts of Jesus' life. Luke is like the super detailed one. Luke sets out to write this really detailed history of who this Jesus was, why did he come, what did he do? And so he goes into more detail, basically setting up the backstory. And before I jump into this passage, I just want to say it's really important to understand that Jesus could have just appeared. God could have had a particular way of doing what he does where Jesus just teleports down at this point in time, and then does his whole thing. But actually, what we see in this story is that God has a purpose. And so the backstory to setting up how Jesus comes, and even before Jesus is born, is absolutely essential. And so as we sort of build up to Christmas, I wanted to set up today, really, I guess, what are those foundations? So if you're someone who has been uh, in faith for many years, it's really important to understand this backstory to allow Jesus to work in your life in new ways. If you're someone who's just exploring and checking this entire thing out, maybe this is all new to you. Maybe there's this sort of hard to describe God thing that God is doing in your life. Do not, be, do not believe that that's unusual. There's a really interesting book a guy, Martin Robinson, wrote a number of years ago, and he talks about something called theophanies. And he said that one of the great untold stories of secular cultures is that at different times, cultures push different things down and don't talk about them. Different times in history, cultures push things down about death. We don't want to mention death. Other times about sex. We don't talk about sex in different cultures. And our culture does talk a lot about sex. Our culture, not so much about death, but it's still in the news. But what Martin Robinson says is that people in secular cultures have experiences with God. In the book, he talks about a study that was done in northern England uh, amongst the people who went to church the least. These were miners in Sheffield, and this one American sociologist of religion went to Sheffield and hung out with these miners and asked them, do you believe in God? No. Do you have a relationship with God? No. Do you go to church? No. Would you ever? No. Like, these guys would just, don't talk about anything, feelings guys, just, just stone walls. But after hanging out with them and gaining their trust, after about six months, they began to concede a very secret truth. And that secret truth was that all of them prayed. They didn't tell their wives. They didn't tell their mates. It was the, the hidden secret which could not speak its name. And bizarrely, they all prayed in the same place, in the toilet. They would lock the door and have this conversation with God. Are you there? So it's not unusual to have this bizarre sense in your stomach when you see a sky full of stars, when you feel your cosmic smallness at times, when you feel that there's some movement in the world which, which has a bigger story behind it. That's not unusual. It's just that our culture represses that story as different cultures repress things. So what this story is doing is helping you link that feeling into the bigger narrative of God's purposes in the world. So, new to faith, long-time faith, this is really important. Let's begin verse 5, um, and it goes like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
in the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. A lot of details. Again, if you're not familiar with the story, some of these details might be a bit strange. But you need to see these details a little bit like how in certain musical genres, hip-hop or dance music, there's samples. And when a sample is used, it's a reference to a past, it's an acknowledgement of someone's musical genealogy, but it's also taking it and doing something new and pointing forward. And so what I want to do is I want to actually look at some of these little details, which you could miss, but in the biblical narrative and tenor and grammar of how Scripture talks, actually these things have little hints to what's going on here. A few of them, Herod, this king. This is a dodgy, corrupt king. This is a king who is not a good guy. Kings are created to bring justice and order to a society. But this king is a king who collaborates with an enemy force. The Romans have taken over, put this part of the world to a military occupation, and they've colonized it. And Herod's the guy who benefits off that. He's a traitor to his own people, and as the good kings of Israel meant to do, they were meant to be people who were actually people of honesty and justice and righteousness. Herod breaks all those rules. So we have a corrupt king. Second, we have a priest. A priest was someone who was meant to be this functionary who worked in the temple. The temple at the center of Jerusalem, a city whose name, root name comes from the word for peace. And at the center of that city, this temple, and it was like that was like the emissary, the embassy, the outpost, the stronghold of God's presence in the world. When the temple was working, the idea was that the whole universe was working. And so we have a priest, and there's a name, Zechariah. That means something. Of the division of Abijah. Again, Abijah, remember that name. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. At the beginning of the Bible, as the story of the people of God begins, they are told to walk blamelessly before their God. They're told to keep the statutes and commandments. So what we have here in a corrupt people of God, under a corrupt king, this remnant, this minority, these people who are old, but they're one of the few who have actually done what has been asked of them. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the source material. This is the sample. Let's return to the original track, and I'm going to get you to turn to the Old Testament, which is all the books preceding Jesus' arrival, and we can actually turn to 2 Chronicles 28, 22. 2 Chronicles 28, 22. 2 Chronicles 28, 22. At this point, Israel is a corrupt. Again, there's a parallel. And I'm just going to begin with this. And remember, we're talking about a corrupt king. So in the gospel account, we have a corrupt king, King Herod. And back here, we have a king, Ahaz. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king, Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus capital of Syria, that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. 
but they were ruin of, the ruin of him and all of Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of the Lord. That's all the stuff in the temple, all the holy stuff in the temple. And he cuts them into pieces, the vessels of the house of the Lord. And he shuts the doors of the house of the Lord and made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Okay, to help you understand what's going on here, at this time, how people understand gods is every region or people or city has a god. And so when countries go to war, like when Russia goes to war with Ukraine in eastern Ukraine, how they would see that is it's the god of Russia versus the god of eastern Ukraine. And whoever wins, it's not because you've got a better military, it's not because you've got better logistics and infrastructure, it's not that you've got a better economic base, your God kicked that God's butt. So Ahaz has militarily had his butt kicked, and therefore he's gone, my God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who I am meant to follow and meant to be his representative on earth, he is obviously weak and ineffectual compared to these Syrian gods who just smashed us on the battlefield. So what he does is he then completely reorientates his worldview and the entire worldview of his people around an idea of defeat. He goes from following the God of Israel who promises to fight for Israel and instead he takes on this concept of defeat. And I just want to just pause and just bounce this back to us. Where I'm going with this this morning is I'm obviously opening the Scriptures, but I just want to let you know a little bit where I'm going. I believe that one of the things completely coming against churches like yours and mine, who are trying to do something in areas where there's not lots of churches or churches aren't growing, in secular cities like Sydney and Melbourne, in secular Australia, where there's this promise of this beautiful life that you can have that's always before us, that when you walk to church, you're walking past cafes and parks and a thousand other things to do, all with their own gospel message. Say, come, have fun have options, have pleasure, have choice, reinvent yourself. You can become anything. That one of the repressed stories is defeat. A low-lying anxiety or fear that constantly, like an app playing in the background of your phone, is influencing everything. And so when we do churches like this, and just chatting to Brian before, like the whole vision behind a church like this, it's fantastic. But one of the things that can play interference in the background, and I see this clearly in my own church, is fear, is anxiety, is a spirit of defeat. And so we can do all of this stuff that churches like your and mine, yours and mine do. We have light bulbs hanging from the roof in our building. I've seen them before. We have a carpet exactly like this. Sometimes up the front, we have pallets like this. We have very similar fonts. It's so similar. 
because some of that is actually good missionary work where you're trying to culturally communicate something. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. There's nothing wrong with communicating and using film references that, that, that relate, using musical references, using cultural forms. There's nothing wrong with preaching the gospel that is unchanging, but doing that in the vernacular of the day. All of that's good. I've given over 20 years of my life to that. But what I've come to realize is that there's this unspoken thing coming against people. If you're a female, I want to say that you are subjected to levels of anxiety that humans have not really been subjected to before. Pressures about who you're meant to be, about what you're meant to look like, what you're meant to achieve, this emotional map that we've been given, which is horribly failing. So one of the strangest things happening in the world at the moment is that the world's most comfortable, peaceful societies with the most consumer goods, with the most options, with cheap overseas travel, with incredible food all around us, with stupendous coffee coming out of our pores... is that we're just flaming miserable. That we look at Instagram feeds. And I talk to girls in my church. And I look at them and go, you should, have every, you should be the happiest person in the world. And yet they're imprisoned looking at their Instagram feeds, comparing themselves to their friends. I've literally had situations where someone will come to me, I'm like, I've got this spiritual problem. What is it? Envy. Okay, talk to me about this. Okay, I'm envious when I look at my best friend Mary's Instagram feed. She is so much more beautiful than me. Her family is so much more perfect. Or she's single and she can do what she wants. And she has such a fantastic time. And I love her and I can't talk to her about this. But I'm just actually really envious. And when I look at her, I feel rubbish about myself. Two weeks later, Mary comes to me and says, I've got this problem. What is it? Envy. These are not real people. I've changed the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> but this, this has happened multiple times. What is it? Then she'll go, oh, it was Penelope. <laughs> if you're Penelope here, I'm not talking about you. I, I've tried to think. Anyway, I'll just keep going. But she'll literally say exactly the same thing. I feel rubbish because of Penelope's Instagram feed. And I'm like, can you guys just talk? Can you just say Hello. Low-level anxiety, normative now. Normative. If you're a guy, there's no manual. Honestly, who, if you're a guy who is a positive role model you look to, who offers you a vision of character, of wisdom, of what to do in life, few and far between. And I find guys filled with anxiety, unsure what to do in their lives. We've been given this script. So many people have been given this script, which works all right until you're 25, and then is rolling disasters after that. We have a situation now where increasingly now it's assumed that fathers, when they have children, are going to also have this falling apart. Because we've been told this life vision where you have incredible freedom to do what you want to do, and then a kid comes, 
in most times in history, I had twins, and it was fascinating. When I would go to the mall, I would have twins, and I had them in this red pram, and they're like these two blonde boys, and I would have like Russian old ladies come up to me, Chinese old ladies, Greek old ladies, Lebanese old ladies, and they go, ah, oh, what a blessing. What a blessing. And then I'll have people my age come up, or younger, and go, oh my goodness, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> and there was truth in both. But it's really interesting. Blessing, knowing it's hard, knowing it's tough, knowing you're not going to have a life like you want to, that you can't go to the cafe when you want, that that holiday to Thailand is never going to happen. And so children now are seen as some kind of restriction on our radical autonomy. That's not a life script you can live out. And so we begin to live out this defeat. And this fear goes into the air. It's now going unspoken in our culture. It's being reflected in elections around the world where now fear decides our vote. And we look to people to blame. So if God's going to use churches like yours and mine, something needs to change. Because if we're to be the people who embody in our lives, a very different way of living, we're actually not called to be people of defeat. Now, I say that not lightly. I say that as someone who I mentioned in my little testimony, 20-second testimony earlier, came to faith in the midst of a mental health crisis, which is not gone from my life, in that it's not a crisis, but it's always in the background, and I live with that, and I will for the rest of my life. But I believe Jesus can give me joy. I believe Jesus can give me a fullness of life that when Jesus says in John 10.10 that I've come for life in abundance, that's speaking to people like me. That's speaking like a guy who has a mental health issue that he has to manage, who has super busy twins, who has a busy job, has a daughter and a full life, that actually... You can find joy in that when you center things on Christ. However, we have to understand and go on a process which we are about to see what happens in the book of Chronicles. So what we have, let's continue on, and we're going to jump to 29, verse 1. So bad king Ahaz, defeated by the Syrian gods, then gives into this thing of defeat where literally what he does is he closes the door to the temple, the temple where the Shekinah glory of God dwells, where it's meant to be there for God's presence so people can go and sacrifice and offer worship and the whole system works. He closes that. He takes all the stuff out of the temple and just trashes it and doesn't just smash it or throw it in a storage somewhere. He cuts it up into pieces. And then what he does is he takes altars, and he, it, it's interesting, it goes from the temple, but he puts altars in everyone's houses. So he almost creates a secular society where God isn't speaking anymore. You can't talk about that. We've shut the door, not happening anymore. We're moving to this new place. But then these little altars, now they're not altars to Yahweh, they're altars to the Syrian gods. They're altars where people can, can worship whatever idols they want. It's a lot easier to control an idol in your lounge room than to control the I am in the temple. But God always has a plan. God is never happy with this situation. And God acts in history as he has always done. Verse 29, verse 1, a new king. 
Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. That's not old. 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah. Heard that before? There's a link to Luke 1. Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Again, familiar, the sample. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. He did what we see. He'd followed the statutes, followed the commandments, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth had done in Luke 1. In the first year of his reign, the first month, he opened the doors of the house and repaired them. His first order of business is not to put up with this situation where this theology, this atmosphere of defeat is in the air in the city. He's not happy to let anxiety and fear stay there. He's going after them as his first order of business. So he gets in the priests and the Levites and he assembled them. These guys have been rocking around. They're at the doll office. They're, they're literally like, what are we? They're playing World of Warcraft on their lounges, not knowing what to do. He brought the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square of the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourself. Consecrate. Separate and make holy. There's this, there's this atmosphere, this atmospherics of defeat, of anxiety, of not following God, of wanting a foot in both camps. We're sort of Israelites and sort of follow Yahweh, but then we want some Syrian action as well, and we want both, and we're going to do a groin if this continues. <laughs> so consecrate yourself, separate, come back to God. So first they must consecrate themselves, then, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. It's really interesting that you use the word filth there. The compromises that have been made. This is talking about a spiritual kind of filth. I just want to say to you, as someone who has experienced this in the past, Depression is filth. Anxiety is filth. Insecurity is filth. Self-hatred is filth. Envy is filth. Jealousy is filth. And I'm not saying that to then heap judgment on you. I'm saying this to someone who understands that. But it is filth, and you don't want to live with it. But sometimes a filthy blanket can be strangely comforting. Hezekiah pushes forward. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, the temple, and turned their backs. They've turned their backs on God. They also shut the doors of the vestibule, the temple, and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place of the Lord of God. This atmospheric of fear, this atmospheric of defeat works against worship. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem and has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, of hissing, as you see with your old eyes, your own eyes. Other translations use the word desolation. Stuff has become a desolation. And I just have this sense. And I have this walk, I'll walk around the coolest areas in Melbourne sometimes. And when I look with my human eyes, I see so many options, so many different meals I could have, so many artisanal cheeses that I'll never eat in a lifetime. And I like that. I like creation and I like that stuff. But when I turn my spiritual senses on and I listen to people, there's a sense of desolation. 
Did you know that effectively, when you look at the main points in which the Western progressive lifestyle is being led of this, which is sort of a bohemian consumerism, that the sociology tells us that it's going to live one generation because its fertility rates are so low. It's not a lifestyle which creates flourishing. It's not a lifestyle that creates fruitfulness. We are just living out an ever-expanding and intensifying vision of radical individualism, which is the opposite of what this story is inviting us into. So Israel has this desolation. We have a desolation where it's nice on the top, but underneath this constant atmospherics of anxiety. Now listen to this next verse. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity for this. We're in this bizarre moment where on one hand we recognize that so much stuff in the world is actually because of toxic male behavior. Megaporn industry, sexual trafficking, domestic violence, men just checking out. Yet on the other hand, we have no, or what's the, what's, what's the answer to that? Our current answer is feel worse. There was one tweet recently done by a leading sort of <coughs> left voice, and he said, I believe the answer to male's toxic behavior is that all men, this is a guy saying this, should commit suicide. That's not an answer. That just means that's going to continue. When I look at our world, and I look at the state of so many men, I look at my friends that I've grown up with at different times and guys I know from my neighborhood. They've fallen by the sword. And we have that as sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. So actually, we're in a captivity where the bars are created with these atmospherics of anxiety. Hezekiah says, though, now in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence and minister to him and be his ministers in offerings. He then goes into a bunch of names, which I won't go through because it's a lot of details, but what that is important, he's, going, he's not going, this is this ideology, here's this floating idea, here's my TED talk, I'm going to put it online and 50 million people are going to watch it. He's going, hey, Fred, it's you. Hey, Justin, it's you. Hey, Julian, you. Hey, it's John, it's you. It's us guys here now, no longer being negligent. And then there's this incredible moment where they, verse 18, sorry, 15. I should lift this up. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. So what you have is you literally have this spiritual backyard blitz. This is the cleaners coming in. This is Pulp Fiction when Harvey Keitel turns up and cleans up the scene. And they then turn up and they, they start going into the outer 
areas. The, the temple was arranged into a number of areas that you got holier as you went in further. They then turn up and they take all of the junk, all of the stuff which was put there because of fear and anxiety and a concept of defeat, and then they take it. Where do they take it? They take it to the Brook Kidron. Other translations have the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is this valley next to Jerusalem where this little brook runs through. It's symbolic for so many reasons. One, when David was being thrown out because of Absalom's rebellion, he steps over that brook in tears. It's a place of defeat. To this day, many Jews wish to be buried there. So it's this graveyard because they believe when the Messiah comes that they'll sort of see it through Jerusalem and so on. So it symbolizes defeat. It symbolizes death. But once a year, when the winter rains come, that little brook turns into a torrent and it washes everything away. There's an echo of baptism here. And so imagine you're, you're in a drone filming this and you're just seeing this line of priests going in and they're going in with what? A heart of repentance and taking out the junk. They take it to the Kidron Valley. It gets washed away. Then they're going deeper in and taking it out. It's washed away. They're going further in until they're consecrating, purifying, repenting the temple for God to again move. About four weeks ago, three weeks ago, it was a Friday afternoon at 4.30. And I'd finished up most of my work for the week. And we'd had a number of people have this sense, and I'd just gotten this from a bunch of people, people in my church, other people um, not at my church, giving me this message they felt from God. So, okay. And the message was, God's going to come to red. Okay. I thought he was here, but he's coming. And a new season was coming. So on Friday, I was like, starting to get excited about this, because I'd heard it a number of times. And at 4.30, I sat in my office, and I started to pray, thank you, God, that you're about to bring a new season to red. And as I started to pray that, I was stopped. And I felt God say to me, Mark, I want you to repent. And I started to have a fight with God. Because what God was saying to me was, Mark, I want you to repent for the ways in which you have led this church in anxiety and fear. Not what you want to hear. I felt that I had gone into the temple. I felt that I'd cleared out a lot of that in my life from the front portico. I felt that I caught it cleared out from the second portico. I thought I'd gone into the depths of the temple and got a lot of that in my life. And I felt God saying, Mark, with courage, go deeper in and take that out. I thought it was unfair. And I, I had to repent to individual people. I had to repent to some of my staff. So it wasn't just like this thing, I'm going to repent and okay, cool. I've had a cry with God and the door's closed and no one's going to see this. And I felt God say I actually had to publicly repent. So I had to repent to my wife, I had to repent to some staff, and I had to repent on Sunday. By the time I got to Sunday, I'd sort of, it was brutal having to repent this stuff, which I actually thought was unfair, and I was holding stuff against people in my heart. And on Sunday, I repented, I just mentioned my sermon, and then we sort of moved on. The next Tuesday, we had our staff retreat. 
And in the first session, like this stuff retreat, we had a really busy time. Our church has sort of grown quickly. And it was just basically, let's go and play pool. Let's get out of sight of town where there's a pool. Thing. We, literally, the first thing I put on the, on the agenda was coffee time, like before any content. It was just refreshment, rejuvenation. But it became repentance. And one of our team began by publicly repenting. And something started. And it went on. Got back from that on the Friday. It was Friday afternoon. I hadn't done emails for a week. And I felt God saying to me, Mark, you need to repent now for stuff that your church has had. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we've got no major things. We haven't had a, a crisis or we haven't had scandal. What are you talking about? Actually, Mark, you've been arrogant as a church. You've seen yourself as cool compared to other churches in your neighbourhood. You've had this rebellious spirit. It just went on. I started to fill the whiteboard with stuff that I had to repent as a leader of my church. Exhausted, glad this was over, I settled in for Sunday services and it kicked off. In a 5pm service, after the service, someone came forward to repent and then another person and another person and three hours later, I was still praying for people. Back in the office on Tuesday, the whole team was together and it kept going. And it pretty much hasn't stopped until I got here. I'm not used to this. And God's doing something really fascinating at my church. I'm here with two of my guys, Daniel and Bjorn, and just before the service, we're getting texts about stuff that's happening probably right now. And in all of this, I've been trying to work out what God's doing. And I believe that what he's doing is that he wants to do something again in our time. If you look at churches like mine and yours, they come out of a time in history in many ways, the origins. In the 19th century, the church was almost overrun by the Industrial Revolution. People had moved out of the parish system and were moving into cities. People had migrated to places like Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, the Caribbean, Canada. The church was on the ropes. There's been a bizarre number of stories. I'm not going to go into them all. Of meeting a businessman in New York, Welsh miners in the countryside, people in the north of Ireland, people in Scotland, people on run-down industrial suburbs, getting together and actually saying, God, consecrate me again. Make me new. People with the courage to go not just to the outer portico of the temple, but actually say, God, I want you to clean my heart. I'm going to go with courage deeper and to repent. And out of that, this incredible movement of churches, an incredible movement of denominations, so many of the leaders that we look back to now, the Bible colleges, all of these things, literally across the world, beginning with the move of God, starting with repentance. 
And part of me feels like at this moment, there's something incredibly right about this because there's something so countercultural about repentance because it's the absolute opposite of the radical individualism of our day. Let's jump back to Luke. So we have these echoes of the clearing out of the temple, of God making the temple right, this idea of repentance where they come in and, and the story ends with the temple regaining its, its function and worship with the people praising. There's this beautiful end at, at the end of uh, chapter 29 where it says, the, you know, the temple worship was restored and the people were amazed and God did it quickly. So let's go back to verse 8. We've got all those samples. We know some of the backstory. Verse 8, Zechariah. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was something you probably did once in your life. Like, this is the apex. He's an old bloke who's done this, and this is his one chance where he gets to go in alone. Incredible moment. And there appearing to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, you've got to understand too, at this point of the Bible, God's hardly spoken for like centuries. We had the prophets talking about that God was going to come and He's going to bring about His kingdom and the Messiah would come and then it just goes dead. It just goes quiet. So you've got generations every day praying that God will speak again. And on this day, Zechariah goes into the temple and it's not just like, oh, I've got this vision or I hear this word or I feel this scripture telling me. Like there's a stinking, hulking angel right there. And Zechariah, verse 12 was troubled when he saw him, troubled. He was anxious, he was fearful, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And we hear that again and again. It becomes one of Jesus' baseline statements, do not be afraid. Zechariah for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. God will answer the barrenness that fear creates. Some of us have had barren faiths, where we're standing here, and maybe you've come to a church like Anchor, and you want to get involved, but you feel this distance between a fullness in the life of God, and this is your, this is your attempt to make it happen. Just coming here is not going to make it happen not being afraid and going deeper with God is actually what is going to make it happen. My church, your church, are never going to make a dent in secular soil if we are afraid. So this blessing is going to come and his name shall be John, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, fear and and anxiety will be replaced by joy and gladness and rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's birth. In the womb, he gets the Holy Spirit, the only guy in the womb, 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the fixing of the problem of the men falling by the sword and the women and daughters in captivity back that we encounter in Chronicles. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? From an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe the words which will be filled in their time. And the people are outside. They're waiting. Like, what? He's disappeared. He should be back by now. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized they'd seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When I read that, it slew me. Slayed me? Slew me? I realized that all of my knowledge on how to do a church, all of my cool light bulbs, cool fonts, church structure that I created, all of the stuff that I was working at was me and my church mutely trying to do signs in a sign language we can't even speak. And that that language would not be understood by people because of the fear in our hearts. And the answer to that was to repent. And so I felt God say to me this four-step thing. The first one was that I had to repent. I had to go into my heart and look at all of the different things that I was secretly holding onto that I did not want to do, give to God. And I had to go into that with the second point, which is with courage. That fear had to be replaced by a step of courage. Then I had to change my posture and how I walked. I had to go in an opposite spirit to the spirit of defeat, which wants your shoulders down, which wants you to walk into a place like this with anxiety, worry Im embedded in your mind. And then lastly, God wanted to change my speech. And since all of this has been happening in the last few weeks, the strange thing is I have found myself praising God constantly. Not having to try, not in that prayer meeting where you're like, okay, we've been asking for a lot of stuff. Has anyone got any praise points? The sun, food, shelter. But I'm continually telling people what God is doing in our midst at the moment. So, this move of repentance, this child born, John, this guy who comes before Jesus preparing the way, like a highway in the desert, is an agent of repentance. He baptizes people not in the Holy Spirit as Jesus will do. He says, the guy's coming after me, I can't even type his shoelaces, but he's so central to the story because he embodies repentance. The people that come and hear his message have to leave where they are, go out into the wilderness, confront the tough stuff in themselves and repent. John is the logical extension of the priest going into the temple and just clearing out junk, clearing out junk, clearing out junk, and then Jesus comes. Saviour. When repentance then creates this space, and Jesus, who's been coming the whole time, like a dot on the horizon, like Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia, slowly coming towards you on his camel, with force, 
hunting you down. Francis Thompson, this methadone-addicted poet, describes it as the hound of heaven chasing him down the alleyways of London, the breath of Christ on the back of his neck, chasing him, coming after you because he wants to save you. I want to say today, whether you are someone who's exploring this entire thing, Christ is chasing you now, running after you. If you're someone who's been doing this Christian thing for ages, God is not happy to let you live this half-Christian life where anxiety constantly plays in the background. God is not happy to leave a, you to live a life where you're constantly compromised by one foot in the wonderful, shiny culture around us and one foot in the church. Jesus wants all of you. And my prayer is that Anchor Church will become an incredible, flashing, burning light bulb that is unable to miss because the people are not gripped by the atmospherics of fear of the day, but live with the joy that Jesus takes all of that stuff, all the junk that you take out to the Kidron Valley, and he takes it on himself. Sin, brokenness, depression, anxiety, evil, the horrible things that people have put over your life that are not even true. And he frees you. Step into that again. Walk forward with courage into repentance. The band's just going to come up now, and we're going to do three things essentially, which I think are totally important at this moment. One, we have some stations here, very much like my church, how we do this. This is good. I feel at home. And what this is, this is the Lord's Supper. This is this little ritual. Jesus doesn't outlay all these different rituals with us, but it's this thing he encourages us to do, this one thing, which is drinking of the wine or the juice, taking of the bread, symbolic of his blood and his body that he gives to us. Those of you who come, I encourage you to come and do that as a reaffirmation of what Jesus is doing in your life, but come and do it as a way of going deeper, if you like, symbolically into the temple that is your heart. Take it into you and say, Jesus, I don't want to live with this stuff. You actually don't have to live with this stuff. Jesus is willing to take anxiety and fear. He doesn't want you imprisoned by that. Secondly, if you're someone who has heard this message, and you're hearing it for the first time, or maybe you've been coming for a little bit, but you haven't jumped across that line, I just want to encourage you to respond to His good news. This is a good news message. This is a message where you give up yourself and disobey yourself to find yourself. But not the you that all the labels have put on, but the you that you discover in Christ because the God of the entire universe loved you so much that he was willing to give his life for you at Calvary. So if you need to make that prayer in your heart now, I encourage you to do that. Up the back, there's going to be people uh, in the prayer spots. They'll have lanyards on. I think they're orange. And if something in this is spoken to you, I encourage you, don't be passive go after this cleaning out. Go deeper into the temple of your soul. Don't let anxiety be a constant companion. Don't let sin be always with you. 
go and pray for someone. If you're uncomfortable, just let them pray for you. Just say, I just need prayer. I believe the Holy Spirit will do what he needs to do. So let's begin to respond in those ways. And I pray that God may begin to transform us now as we prepare for Jesus to come again in our lives in incredible ways. So I'm just going to pray real quick. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing. I just want to pray for every brother and sister in this room, created by you, fearfully and wonderfully made. I want to thank you, Jesus, that they don't have to live with the baggage that they have. I want to pray, Father, that something begins here at Anchor Church where people begin to go after you in incredible ways because, you know, the reality is you're coming after us and we just need to walk in repentance, not resisting, not putting up walls. I want to pray for people who are exploring faith. Jesus, come to them. Take away the fear that this is going to make them strange. Take away the fear of being out of control, but instead let them fall into your arms, Jesus. I want to pray for people who have been coming here for a long time, who may even be leaders, but anxiety is in the background. This atmospherics of defeat that's all around us. I want to pray, Jesus, that we can give that to you. So whether they do that in their seats, taking communion, being prayed for, God, begin a work of repentance. Give people courage to go against the grain. Pray this now in your name. Amen.